I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we open the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you, Father, that we do not believe blindly. Father, that we have the hope of eternal life. And we look forward to seeing Jesus again. For he has come once, and Father, in the good news, the gospel, he has come already giving his life for us on the cross. And Father, he will come again and take us to be with him. Father, help us as your people who are empowered by your spirit to be people at the end of our life who say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May we be encouraged this morning by your word. May you convict us where we need to be convicted. And may your spirit speak through the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I referenced this a couple weeks back, but uh, if I reference it twice, it means you probably should go and view this. But there is a documentary called The Insanity of God. And the documentary is about the persecuted church. And um, this guy named Nick Ripkin, I've actually met him before, but he has gone to all parts of the world where the church has been persecuted for their faith and ask him this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be thrown in jail? Is it worth it to be killed? Is it worth it to lose your job? Is it worth it to lose your money for the sake of Christ? And there's a story in the documentary. The story is a story about Dimitri. And Dimitri was in the old USSR and he gathered his family together. He had gathered his family in his home and he had begun to story the Bible to them. He had begun to read God's story from his word and tell his family the great truths about God. And one day his neighbors began to come in and, and, and weeks went on until it grew to about 150 people and the whole neighborhood, the whole town was coming to his home. And you know what happened? The authorities could not allow this to continue. And so they took Dimitri away and they threw him in prison with 1,500 hardened criminals. You imagine going into a prison with 1,500 criminals for gathering and talking about Jesus. Dimitri, as was his custom, as he did every single morning, he got up and he looked towards out his bar windows, his, his cells, and he began to sing his heart song unto the Lord, praises as we just did unto the Lord. You can imagine what, what happened as he would do this every single day as 
the men and women, the men in the, the prison would throw things at him. They would clang the bars. They would yell choice words in his direction. And every day this would happen. The guards hated him, not only because he was a believer in Jesus, but because he was bold in his proclamation about Jesus. They would beat him and one day he found a piece of paper and a, and a pencil and he, and he wrote down every, every single scripture he could remember and he had those scriptures and he would look at that little piece of paper and those scriptures that he had remembered. The guards found the piece of paper and beat him because of that. And this happened for 17 years. 17 years, Dimitri would get up every morning and sing his praise to the Lord. His heart grew weary after a number of years of doing this, away from his family, away from his wife and his children. And yet the Lord sustained him until the day that where they came to take him out to kill him. It was his time to be executed and the guards came in and they took Dimitri out of the cell and they walked Dimitri down the halls of the prison and there began a loud, boisterous sound echoing through the prison as the, all the rest of the prisoners began to sing Dimitri's heart song unto the Lord. The prisoners stepped back and said, who, who are you? And Dimitri said, I am a child of the king. I am a son of the one true God, and his name is Jesus. Dimitri was actually released a few weeks later, and he was able to tell the story a few years later. But Paul is telling a similar story to young Timothy here. He's reminding young Timothy that in the end, it is all worth it to live for Christ. Paul has gone through many different things, being shipwrecked, being bitten by a snake, many different things, being persecuted, being beaten, being left for dead. And the word of God here is reminding us to persevere because the crown of righteousness that waits for us. This, this morning we're reminded that in the middle of the fight, in the midst of the race that we all run, there awaits for us a finish line of glorious reward and that is to be with the Lord in glory. Let's look at verse 6 together. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. This is our first point from the, here this text this morning which is gospel-centered Christians live with purpose. Gospel-centered Christians live with purpose. Guess what? Paul had purpose. And his purpose was not for himself. His purpose was to live for Christ. He's already being poured out like a drink offering. His life was a living sacrifice. You see, the drink offering was an allusion to the Old Testament evening and morning sacrifices. That they sacrificed the animal on the altar. They would pour out the wine as a drink offering offering to the Lord, an aroma 
pleasing to the Lord. Now, you may ask yourself this question. Why did they have these sacrifices? Why did they have these offerings? Again, it was to point the people back to their need for a substitutionary atonement for sin. It was to show the people that they were sinners and there must be punishment for their sin. The animal, the the drink offering, was just a picture of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, who would be slain for us. Guess what? The Lamb of God was the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we don't sacrifice today. That was Jesus. Last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and we read where Christ is the drink offering that was poured out for us. Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus is sitting there and he says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So when Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering, he means his life is a living sacrifice. His life is not his own. His life is buried with Christ and raised to walk in a new life. So many people wander around, really not knowing what their purpose in life is. Let me ask you this question. What is your purpose? Is your purpose to eat the choicest food, to drink the choicest drink, to get the greatest house you can possibly get, to accumulate the most money that you can? What happens when you die? question not very many people ask you right do you take all that stuff with you Solomon one of the most wealthy men to ever live his estimated net worth was 2.2 trillion dollars in today's dollars and yet at the end of his life when discussing all the things that he had he said all of it is vanity it's all meaningless he said there's only one thing that matters. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Paul's reminding Timothy here with his pouring out of his drink offering that we must live for eternal matters. And not the earthly matters. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when you come to the end of your life, can you say, I live? With a lasting purpose. Look at the end of this verse in, chapter, in verse 6. 
and the time of my departure has come. The imagery here is beautiful in the Greek with the word for departure literally meaning a loosing from the dock. Like a ship sets sail, he looses from the dock and departs. Guess what? A believer never dies. He just departs. And Paul is telling Timothy that he's about to depart from this present world to make the joyous journey to be with the Lord. Paul has awaited this moment. Philippians 1.23, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Charles Spurgeon said the end of his, at the end of his life said this, To come home to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of all my wishes. What a great desire it is to be with the Lord. May we be ready when the Lord calls us home. May we be people who reflect Christ and our lives are poured out as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Never, uh, it's not always a great thing to talk about death when you're preaching, right? But this text is joyously talking about our death. Verse 7 says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is our second point this morning, which says gospel-centered Christians endure till the end. Gospel-centered Christians endure till the end. Guess what? Endurance is a mark of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 13 says this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. He is speaking of those who are truly born again, whose lives are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and these are true followers in Jesus Christ. They will stand in the midst of the wickedness of the world They will reject false teaching. They will cling fast to the truth of the word of God. And they will overcome the world. But guess what? They don't do this because they are strong or they are smart or they are mighty in and of themselves. They do this not out of their own power but because of the work of the Holy Spirit. At salvation, we're sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God works in us to be able to stand in the midst of trials and stand in the midst of persecution. You see, Paul had fought the good fight. He had finished the race. He had endured the trials. He had kept the faith. He took up his cross and he never laid it down. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this about our salvation and how God is the one that holds us together. 
that gives us the ability to stand. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that saying? It's saying you go through all this stuff and this junk so that God can be glorified in the end. And God is the one that's holding you up to be able to go through it. Paul has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. I love the Olympics. I love the, the intensity of the Olympics. It only happens every four years. you got this small window. You train for days and hours and weeks, and, and you have 30 seconds. Something goes wrong. It's over. All that work, gone. In 1992, there was an Olympic athlete. His name was Derek Redmond. He was a English, a British runner, and he was running the 400 meters in Barcelona. He had trained his whole life for this moment. He had a shot at the medal, and it was the semifinals. He's expecting to get to the finals, no problem. He crouches down in his position. The gun goes off. Redmond takes an early lead, cruising into the finals. And he's almost done with the turn. And suddenly a loud pop. Redmond's on the ground. His hamstring is gone. The trainers rush over to him. Hush falls over the crowd. The trainer says to him, something defective, you have to stay on the ground. But he says, no, I'm going to finish the race. So he hops on one leg a, a few, few feet until his father comes out of the stands, grabs him by the shoulder, and they walk hand in hand across the finish line. Thunderous applause from the, the people that witnessed this. He finished. You know, to, to finish the race, one must enter the race. The race Paul is talking about here is not some random race that you just want to run for yourself. The race that he's talking about here is the race of salvation through Christ. It is the only path to everlasting life. And guess what? 
one enters the race only by understanding that they are a sinner. They've fallen short of a holy and righteous God. They understand that God has given a way, a path to salvation, and that is only through the blood of Christ who died on the cross in our place. I must ask you, are you running the right race? Are you on God's path for salvation? It's interesting, he not only uses the race as an analogy, but he also uses the fights. Fight the good fight. You see, the Christian life is not easy. You take blows, you take shots, you get knocked down. And yet by the power of Christ in you, you get up and you continue to fight. And guess what? Every time that you get up from the ground, whatever is thrown at you, may it be your health, may it be your loved one, may it be your, your financial situation, may it be your issues that you have at school, may it be your marriage, whatever knocks you down, you get up and you bring glory to God, you declare the goodness and the grace of God every time you get up and you continue to walk in that path. May at the end of our life we look back and say we don't have any regrets. We have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. I, I, <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen that commercial with the, uh, the guy that, that has a tattoo on his chest and it says, no regrets, right? It, instead of no regrets, no regrets. He's like, no regrets. Have you fought the good fight? Have you finished the race? Verse 8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This is our third point this morning. Gospel-centered Christians see the finish line. Gospel-centered Christians see the finish line. And what's at the finish line? We see the author and the perfecter of our faith who is there waiting to receive us at the finish line. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guess what? The goal of the Christian life is not to get to heaven. That's not the goal. So that I can get to heaven. The goal of the Christian life is to be with the Lord in heaven. Many people say, what will heaven be like for me? 
Will it have a fine golf course for me? Will it have all the amenities that I seek? No doubt heaven will be greater than anything that we can ever imagine. But the thing in heaven that will be the greatest is that we will see God face to face and be with him. We will be made righteous. We will be in the glorified state. Gospel-centered Christians see the greatness of God and desire to be with him. This final picture here is another athletic analogy in which Paul uses the victor's crown, a crown of righteousness, that Jesus will place upon his head. Now, let me be clear here because there can be some confusion. We are declared righteous at the moment of salvation, right? That is our justification. When we call out to the Lord and say, I put my trust and faith upon Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous in the sight of God because Christ covers our sin. He sees Christ in us. Yet when we walk this earth, running this race, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit in our struggle with sin We call that the sanctification process in which God is making us like Christ, that we are overcoming sin and the the sin that easily entangles us and we're throwing it aside and we're becoming more like Christ. And we await heaven, and this is what he's talking about here, the crown of righteousness. We await heaven, the permanent state of righteousness, the glorification state where we are made perfect and dwell with God for all eternity because we are made new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us For an internal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, Paul has a sight for the finish line. And we as believers have work to do here on this earth. But if we lose sight of glory, if we lose sight of Christ and being with Christ for all eternity, we may be easily distracted or easily swayed by the temptations of this world. 